Well, good morning. Church, we are so privileged to have Tim Lucas Savage lead us week in and week out in worship. I have been serving with him for several years now, and he is a man who is gospel-centered, who is humble, who hates the spotlight, wants our gaze to be upon uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know he slaves week, week in and week out trying to select songs that would stir our affections for Jesus. And, and even if we had no sermon, he thinks through, man, would, would the people of God be fed with truth? And so, Tim, thank you so much for, uh, for leading us week in and, uh, and week out. Yeah. Dale's really excited for this morning. I don't know if you can hear him, so, and I'm excited as well in Revelation 4. So let's, let's pray and just ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Oh God, we are stunned at your glory. We are stunned at the beauty of this passage. And God, we pray that you would bind up all of the distractions that might come into this room and into our minds. Lord, I just pray through your spirit and through your word that you would fill us with a sense of your glory this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What are you most looking forward to in heaven? That was the question that those individuals in the video were, were trying uh, to answer. How would you answer that question? What are you most looking forward to in heaven? It's an interesting question when you, when you stop and think about it. And yet, it's not only interesting, it's extremely important. In fact, I would go as far as to say that that question and the answer to that question has one of the greatest impacts on how we are to live this life today than almost any other question that we could ask. And did you notice in the video that only one person mentioned God as far as what they're most looking forward to in heaven? I wonder why that's the case. And even as I asked that question to you this morning, I wonder if there are some of us in this room that went to all kinds of other things and didn't really think about God. And I wonder if the reason for that is because for some of us in this room today and for the individuals in that video, we don't think about God as often as we should. And when we do think about God, do we have the correct view of God? Do we have the, the right understanding about who God actually is? And it begs the question, when you think about God, what comes into your mind? That when you stop and you think about who God is and what He is like, what, what do you imagine? What scriptures, if, if any, come to your mind when you think about God? A.W. Tozer, who's pretty famous for this quote related to that question, he says this, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most threatening fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Do you agree with that statement, that the most important thing about a person is what comes into their mind when they think about God. Now, what if I told you this morning that the most important thing in life is to pursue the right understanding of God? 
What if I told you this morning that, that having a right view of God has the ability to restore your marriage this morning? That what if I told you that having a right understanding of God has the ability to give you purpose and meaning in life more than anything else in this life? And what if I told you that having the right understanding of God has the ability to fight off sin that you're struggling with in life? How would that impact your pursuit of rightly understanding who God is and what he is like? See, that's what I want us to see this morning in Revelation chapter 4, that what we think about God in heaven has a direct impact on how we live our lives here on this earth. That having the correct view of God is not just nice for Sunday morning, but it has the power to impact every area of our lives. And so this morning, as we move through our passage in in Revelation chapter 4, this glorious passage, we're going to center on God and His glory today. And I want to move through three different aspects of God's glory that we see in this passage. Number one, we'll look at the display of God's glory the display of God's glory. Then second, we'll look at the centrality of God's glory, how God's glory is absolutely central. And then thirdly, we'll look at the response to God's glory, the response. And my hope and my prayer, something that I've been praying for us all throughout this week, is that each and every one of us would walk out of this room with with such a, a greater understanding of God's glory that it would impact every area of our lives, that we would see everything through the lens of God's glory, that this passage, after we look at it and study it, wouldn't just be something that we're looking forward to experiencing in heaven, but that we would understand that because this is true, how does this impact how we live today? That, that's what I want us to see this morning. And so let's start with the display of God's glory, the display Our passage begins in verse 1 with John, the author of Revelation and the apostle, says, After this I looked. Now, after this is a phrase that occurs over five times throughout Revelation. And you need to know that with each time, it introduces a new vision. And he says, after this, and this refers to the whole vision that John has seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's important to know that chapter 4 doesn't just appear out of nowhere, but it's following chapters 1, 2, and 3. And in chapter 1, we see John has this vision of Jesus, this glorious vision of of what Jesus is like. And in chapters 2 and 3, we see the seven letters to the seven churches. And so John says, after this, he sees something. And he not only sees something, but he hears something. Now, what does John see in our passage? Well, he saw a door standing open in heaven. And then he heard a voice, most likely Jesus' voice, if you look at chapter 1, saying to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place. And the scene that John describes here is absolutely stunning. It's impossible to overhype this scene. I was thinking through, how do I describe this scene and unpack it? And I felt just at ease knowing I can't overhype the the majesty of what we see in this passage. That this scene has the power to reconfigure our lives, to reorient the entirety of how we live our lives. 
See, in verse 2, John sees a throne in heaven, and he sees God seated on the throne. And what he describes just absolutely takes your breath away. That even as, as Kurt was reading this passage, like your jaw just like drop, drops to the floor in awe of what John is, is describing up in heaven. It just kind of stops you in your tracks. You're just filled with an awe and a wonder at what's taking place in heaven. And if I could sum up this passage in one word, it would be glory. That what John sees is glory. And this morning, I'm going to be talking a lot about glory. And I think glory is, is one of those words in the church and in the Christian life that just kind of gets assumed that we know what, what we're talking about when we talk about glory. And we use that word almost every week. And so the way I'm, I'm defining glory, in short, is the public display of God's infinite worth and beauty. God's public display of his infinite worth and beauty, or as John Piper puts it, God going public with his infinite perfection. God's going public with his infinite perfection. And so John is seeing that on display in our passage this morning. Now before we dive in again, it's important to know that John is writing in part, he's writing Revelation to encourage real churches who are faced with the temptation to give up. That John is writing down what he's seeing in heaven, this amazing vision, in part to encourage real believers who are faced with trials, who are faced with hardship, who are faced with persecution, who are faced with all kinds of temptations. And if you ever read Revelation, you'll notice that John is not describing a God who is wimpy, who is soft, who is gentle, But John is describing a God who is so glorious and majestic. And in fact, in in one part, he describes God as having blazing fire in his eyes, having a sword coming out of his mouth. And John is doing that to help these believers to keep pressing on, to persevere, to not give up. And so the picture of of what we see, even in Revelation 4, is in part to help us persevere and not give up. That we see God who is mighty, who is all-powerful, who is seated on the throne of authority. There may be no other passage in the whole Bible that better paints a picture of God's glory than this one. The language John uses to describe God and his glory is magnificent. It almost seems like John is just stretching the limits of vocabulary and communication, trying to explain what he's seeing here. And part of what we're supposed to feel in this passage is awe and wonder. And one apologist was trying to unpack this scene and and how we're supposed to feel awe and wonder, and he tells this story. He says, if I were telling my three children the same fairy tale, notice the different reactions. He says, if I took Sarah, age eight, and said to her, Sarah, little Tommy got up, walked to the door, opened the door, and a dragon jumped out in front of Tommy, Sarah's eyes would go wide. And then he says, but now imagine me telling little Naomi, age four, the same story. Says, Naomi, little Tommy got up, walked to the door, and opened the door. Naomi's eyes would go wide. 
And then he says, now let's imagine I tell the story to Nathan, age two, whose entire worldview is exhausted in one word, cookie. He says, all I have to say to Nathan is this, little Tommy got up, walked to the door, and Nathan's eyes would get wide with amazement. Now, now here's his point. He says this. He says, you see the difference? Sarah needed the dragon. Naomi needed to open the door. But for Nathan, it was a pretty big deal just to walk up to the door. Then he says this. He says, the older you get, the more it takes to fill your hearts with awe and wonder. And only God is big enough to fill it. That's is what we're supposed to feel and experience as we read Revelation chapter 4 to be filled with an awe and a wonder that just blows us away because only God is big enough to fill our hearts and our souls with that yearning for God's glory. In this passage, it kind of wakes us up from being so flippant and so casual as we approach God throughout the week that we're almost just blitzed with just this majesty of who God is that blows us away and fills us with that awe and wonder. And so let's take a look at what we see, the display of God's glory. So John sees someone sitting on the throne who has the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and he sees around the throne this rainbow that has the appearance of an emerald, Now, jasper was a type of stone or jewel that was especially associated with the glory of God. You can see that in Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11. And carnelian is a fiery red stone, which was very popular in the ancient world. Then John also sees that rainbow, this unusual shape that's just encircling the throne. And the imagery of this rainbow, what we're supposed to think is God's faithfulness, It's this radiant light that's surrounding God that's supposed to draw our attention to God's endless faithfulness. It's the beauty of the unapproachable light in which God dwells. And then jump down to verse 6, where John describes what's before the throne now. He says, now what's before the throne is the sea of glass, like crystal, most likely referring to God's transcendence and His holiness. And so in one sense, this sea of glass reflects the magnificent colors of the throne room, and yet in another, it's transparent, being crystal clear. And I just want to point out, if you're really into kind of eschatology and revelation, which we all should be, it's important to know that these three stones here, jasper, carnelian, and crystal, are also found in the New Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22. And so it appears that John wants to link the majesty of God's glory with the splendor of the new Jerusalem. And then, around the throne are these 24 elders on 24 thrones. And these elders are described as wearing these white garments representing purity and holiness. And they have these golden crowns on their heads representing their royal status and what they've accomplished And I'll just point out, it's not certain what these 24 elders represent, but most believe that the 24 comes from the 12 tribes of of Israel combined with the 12 apostles, kind of representing all of humanity or all of the people of God just bowing down before Him in worship. And yet, I 
I don't want us to get caught up in, in who the 24 represent, but what's obvious here is John is not so concerned about who they are, but in what they're doing. That what they're doing is they are bowing down, worshiping God. And so I know our imaginations want to we want to be fascinated with what the 24 represent and what the four living creatures represent. But notice what they are doing, that they're worshiping God. And also, not only that, not only do you have these beautiful stones and jewels and, and the rainbow that's circling the throne and these 24 elders bowing down worshiping God, but John also describes what's coming out of the throne, so try to picture this. He describes these flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder coming out of the throne. These are the sounds of God's judgments. that They stem from the work of God and serve as the basis for his judgment and also for worship. Not only that, though, but also before the throne, not only is there the sea, the sea of crystal glass, but also at the end of verse 5, there's something else before the throne. John describes the seven burning torches of fire, which represent the seven spirits of God. This is a clear reference to the Holy Spirit before the throne. And if you think John is done describing the glory of God, he keeps going. Look at the second half of verse 6. He starts to describe the the four living creatures that are positioned around the throne, one on each side. But these are just remarkable creatures. They're, they're kind of these scary creatures, almost this mixture of like Lord of the Rings and Star Trek. This is a sci-fi scene. It's, it's absolutely remarkable. And this is also difficult to understand just what they represent, that most believe that the four living creatures represent all of creation, that's just worshiping God. But again, notice what they're doing. They're worshiping God. And John describes them in verse 6 as full of eyes in front and behind. That the first creature is like a lion. The second is like an ox. The third with the face of a man. And the fourth like an eagle in flight. And all of them have six wings. And day and night... Day and night, they never cease to give God praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is unbelievable. I mean, this is, this is jaw-dropping just descriptions of God's glory on display. I mean, this is utterly amazing. I mean, if you, if you just stop and try to visualize this scene... Like, first of all, you've got God on the throne, and, and he, he's represented with these, this appearance of all these jewels and stones. And then around the throne, you've got this rainbow, and you've got the, the 24 elders that are also around the throne, and they're just bowing down, worshiping God. And then before the throne, you've got the, a sea of crystal glass and the seven torches of fire of, of the Holy Spirit. And then you've got these crazy four living creatures that if they were here before us today, we would be in utter fear and terror, and they're worshiping God as well. Just notice the display of God in his majesty. And my question for us this morning, is that what you picture when you think about God? Is that what comes into your mind as you're praying, as you're worshiping, as you're leading your family in devotions, as you're talking about God in conversation, is this what you picture 
God in all of His holiness and all of His majesty on the throne, just constantly being worshipped by these creatures that, that we would be totally in fear of. Do you see the importance of viewing God correctly, not viewing Him flippantly, not casually, but this is a God in all of His holiness and splendor on display for us. And this is meant to do something to us. This is meant to, to move us. It's meant to move us to, to some direction. You can't just read this passage and try to visualize this and, and just stay the same. You can't be neutral as, as you read and, and see the display of God's glory. It's, it's moving us in a certain direction, and that's, and that's what the centrality of God's glory is all about. So let's take a look at the centrality of God's glory here. Now John not only explains the display of God's glory, but we're also meant to see the centrality of God's glory in this passage. That all throughout this scene and, and this vision of John, there's a fixation upon God in his glory on the throne. That the throne of God is mentioned 12 times in this passage alone. And as mentioned already, you've got the four living creatures that are surrounding the throne. You've got the 24 elders also surrounding the throne. And you also have that rainbow surrounding the throne. And these circles around the throne are the core vision and picture of glory and worship. You can't read this passage and not notice that all of the attention, all of the activity revolves around God and His glory. That it's absolutely central. So do you see the centrality of God in this passage? That even as you look at what characteristics of, of God that are on display in this passage, you should notice the centrality of God. At first, you see the internality of God as you hear the four living creatures declare that God was, is, and is to come. That, that He's always existed and will always exist. We see the holiness of God also in their worship. We see the faithfulness of God in the, in the rainbow. We see God's transcendence seen in the sea of, of clear crystal glass. We see God as creator and sustainer in verse 11. We see God's omnipotent power, his unmatched beauty, his indescribable worthiness, his sovereignty, and much, much more. And all of that is at the center of our scene you see the centrality of God here? I mean, even as, as we were kind of describing what the four living creatures are and what the 24 represent, did you notice your heart kind of getting caught up in, in what those represent, or was your heart caught up in the majesty of God? Were you more fascinated with what this represent, what the four represent, or were you more caught up in God and His glory? See, this passage is not just about the centrality of God in heaven, but as, as we read this passage, we're almost meant to ask the question, is God that central in your life? That if you think about heaven and you think about God's throne being the center focus, the, the central hub of everything forever and ever and ever, let me remind you that we'll never get sick of that. We'll never grow, grow old of just the fact that God will be the central focus forever and ever. But if that's true, then does your life 
look like that today? Is God central in his glory? Is that the central piece in your life? Or put, put it this way, what is at the center, what is at the core of the core of the core in your life that everything else revolves around? that your time revolves around, that your energy revolves around, that your relationships revolve around, that your affections revolve What is at the core of the core of the core? Is it God's glory or is it something else? Is it vocational success? Is it financial security? Is it being liked by everybody else? What, what is at the core of your life? What is the central hub that everything else revolves around. Is it the glory of God? John Piper has an amazing quote here about heaven, and he kind of positions this hypothetical situation this way. He says, the critical question for our generation, and really for every generation, is this, that if you could have heaven with no sickness with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ was not there? How would you answer that question this morning? Could you be satisfied with a Christless heaven. And maybe if, if you're thinking for a moment and you try to picture heaven like that, maybe if you were honest, maybe you're thinking to yourself, man, all my friends are there, family's there, all the food I love, all the experiences I love to enjoy, no, no sickness, no sin, no death, no conflict. Man, that sounds pretty good. And, okay, Jesus isn't there. That might be a little bit of a bummer, but, but man, I, I might be able to cope. I might be able to enjoy heaven forever and ever and ever if, if all those other things were there. Is, is that perhaps what you're thinking today? Or, or when, when you read that and you think about heaven without Christ, are, are you absolutely devastated are you absolutely heartbroken that I can't even picture heaven without Jesus, that, that Jesus is my joy, that he is my satisfaction, that he is my, my fulfillment, that, that heaven without Jesus makes absolutely no sense? Is that your reaction to that question? That because Jesus is the core of the core of the core of your life, that thinking about heaven without him is actually hell, would you be devastated with a Christless heaven? I think one of the takeaways of our passage this morning is that the greatest thing about heaven, absolutely the greatest thing about heaven is that you get God. That's the greatest thing. Not, not that there won't be any sickness, not that there's no sin, not that we'll see lost, or lost loved ones there, the greatest thing is that you get God and you see God's glory on display. And honestly, that's, that's the beauty of what it means to be a Christian. That being a Christian is not just having your sins forgiven. It's not just having an, an alien righteousness that's now yours. It's not just being transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son. 
It's not just having your sins be removed as far as the east is from the west. But the greatest thing about being a Christian is that you get God. And heaven is all about enjoying the beauty and the display of God's glory. And yet for some of us, it just wonder if, if we would almost rather have the gifts that God gives us in heaven rather than God himself. Rather than the giver, are we more caught up in, in the gifts when we think about heaven? That as we go through this sermon series, are we gravitating more to what will this be like and what will we get to experience and see rather than the fact that, man, you get God. Utterly amazing. And I know in my own life, whenever I get more caught up in the gifts God gives me rather than the giver himself, that's when I start to experience some issues and sin in my own life. It reminds me when I was growing up, I was in this play. I was in elementary school and I was in this play at church. And there's this play called Salty. And Salty represented the Bible. Okay, and so the main character, really, the whole play was about salty, about the Bible. And I was in elementary school, and honestly, I was very egocentric and really caught up in myself. And, and it was the day before our first performance. We were kind of going through a walkthrough. And our director was passing out the microphones. You know, who gets what mic? This was a big deal for me as an elementary school because I really, really wanted the Britney Spears mic. Okay, the one I'm wearing right now. You know, I want it because it just looked cool. You know, I didn't want just one of those regular microphones. And so they pass out the microphones. And man, I get one of those lousy old school microphones. And I didn't get Britney Spears' microphone. You know, I was like, man, what's going on? And so I threw a fit. And I actually threatened not to perform. You know, I'm this little elementary school, thought the whole world revolved around me. And so my director, the director of the play, pulled me aside, and he said, Chris, you need to know that this play is not about you. That this play is about salty. It's about the Bible. And you and your three little lines, that's all I had, <laughs> is not the point of the play. But, and, and he says, look, I want you to think about your three lines as Act the best that you can act as an elementary school person and, and do as well as you possibly can so that people are more, more focused on salty than you. And I learned a very, very valuable lesson with that conversation that life is not about me. Life is not about my happiness. Life is not about my own kingdom. Life is not about my own plan for my life. Life is not even all about my salvation. Life is about God and his glory, and, and my salvation is a part of that. But life is about the display of God in his glory. And look, I only have three lines in the play of life. And so I want to I act, I want to live out those three lines here on this earth the best that I possibly can so that people are more caught up in the glory of God than with me. And I just wonder if so many of the issues that we experience in life, you know, the relational issues, the, the marital issues, the, the sin struggles that we have, the, the lack of purpose that we fall into, I wonder if it has anything to do with the lack of centrality of God's glory in our lives. Could it be that we're more caught up at us being the core of the core of the core rather than God and his glory 
that we need to be caught up in, man, all of this is about God and displaying his glory to other people. That, man, when we read this passage and we think, this is what heaven is like forever and ever and ever, does your life look like that today? Do you live your life with God at the core of who you are? And the way that that happens is by beholding God's glory, by by seeing God's glory and savoring God's glory. And the more that we see it, the more that we savor it, the more that it becomes central in our lives. That we have this book for a reason. And, And we take this book for granted far too often, but this book is available to us every day. And so my challenge for us as we're thinking about how do we make God's glory central in how we live, get in this book and read this book. Allow your souls to just, to just be soaked with God's glory in this book, to feed yourself the glory of God in the Bible, to read it slowly, unhurried, and just stand back in amazement at God's glory as you read through God's redemptive plan from start to finish. And as you read the Bible, you, you notice that Wow, like life is about God and his glory. It's not about me and my happiness. It's about God being central in our lives. So not only do we see the display of God's glory, not only is God's glory central in this passage, but we see this incredible response of God's glory. Look with me at verses 8 through 11, the response to God's glory. John says this, he says, and the four living creatures, again, try to picture this, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And each day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders They fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Not only that, but they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Do you see the response? Here to God's glory, you're the four living creatures day and night, never ceasing to proclaim the praise of God. And whenever they give glory, we have the 24 elders, they then fall down and worship God and they cast their crowns down before God and they proclaim, worthy are you, O God. The proper response to seeing the display of God's glory, to seeing the centrality of God's glory is surrender in worship. That we see clearly the words of their worship in their singing. That we see the actions of their worship in the casting down of their crowns before God. That the crowns actually represent authority and accomplishment. They just throw those down before God as an act of surrender, that they are yielding to the King of kings and Lord of lords, that this is the response to God's glory. A few years ago, 
uh, my wife and I, we jumped on the Whole30 challenge. This pains me to describe because it takes me back, but the Whole30 challenge is this diet where it basically removes anything that is delicious in life and forces you to only eat healthy foods, right? So it eliminates what dairy, grains, delicious sugars, all of that good stuff. And, um, and I'll just be honest with you, I lasted about nine days, okay? So I did not complete the 30-day challenge. This is really freeing just to confess this this morning. But Lindsay completed it. She actually did it twice. And to be honest with you, full disclosure, there's actually still a debate how many days I actually lasted. Like, she thinks three, so she's holding up three. I would say nine, and since I have the microphone, we'll go with nine this morning. And throughout the nine-day experience of just torture, I learned a few things, okay? Now, the first couple days, again, they're they're just horrendous. Like, you have these headaches, you're craving all kinds of, I'm I'm being dramatic, but this this is how it is. You actually start to dream about food a little bit, but after the first couple days, you kind of get past that, something remarkable happened, at least for me. And for those few more days that I was on this Whole30 challenge, I started to actually enjoy healthy food. That when I thought about Taco Bell, which I like to frequent as my fourth meal sometimes, when I thought about Taco Bell and like pizza and just unhealthy food, like it no longer was desirous. That I was thinking about healthy food, we were kind of into juicing at the time. Man, I couldn't wait to have that glass of extracted juices from vegetables and fruit. And I can't believe I'm saying this this morning. But I noticed that you can actually train your taste buds, that you can dictate what your taste buds not only crave, but actually enjoy. And that's what the Whole30 Challenge is all about. Now, I share that this morning because did you know that your soul has taste buds? When you stop and you think about it, your soul has the ability not only to crave certain things, but your soul has the ability to enjoy certain things. And For for much of our responsibility as a follower of Christ, our role is to train our soul to not only crave the glory of God, but actually to enjoy the glory of God. And what this passage does is it helps us train our soul that as we meditate on the glory of God, we crave it and we enjoy it. And one of the greatest ways that we can actually retrain the taste buds of our soul is by finding out what are those activities and disciplines in our lives that kind of position us under the glory of God? What are those things in your life that give you a longing for God's glory, that give you a desire for God's glory? And whatever those things are, to fill your life with them, to saturate your life with those things that stir a longing for God in His glory. And look, for some of us, it's just reading the Bible, that reading God's Word fill us with a longing for God's glory. And for others of us, it's going on nature walks. We're filled with the glory of God there. For others of us, it's building something. It's using our hands. It attaches us to God's glory. For others of us, it's sitting down with a seasoned saint who's been walking with the Lord for decades and just asking them, hey, tell me about God's faithfulness. Tell me about what you've been learning about God as you've been walking with him for decades. 
But look, as you're thinking about how to train the taste buds of your soul, what are those things in your life that create a longing for God and his glory? And just fill your life with them. And honestly, the more that you fill your life with them, the more that you see God's glory and you savor God's glory, the more that God's glory will be central in your life. And that will cause you to respond in worship. But the more that you feed your soul God's glory, the more that you respond in just total surrender before God in worship. And when I talk about worship, I'm not just talking about singing on Sunday morning, but talking about worship the way that the Apostle Paul defines worship in Romans 12, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. That worship is not just about singing, But every arena of your life is put before the Lord in surrender, saying, God, you dictate how I live my life, that because of who you are, I'm going to live accordingly because of your glory and because of your majesty and because of of who you are as the king of kings. So do you see your work as worship? Do you see your marriage as an opportunity to worship? Do you see the trials that you go through in this life as an opportunity to worship? Do you see every arena through the lens of worship to giving God glory? Stay-at-home moms, do you view your role as worship, changing diaper after diaper as, as a way to giving God glory as you faithfully raise the next generation? Every arena can be a means for us to giving God glory and worship. And the more that we train our souls to long for it, the more that we will look like Jesus in worship. And so we see this response in this passage that they're just blitzing the throne of God with praise and glory and worship. And that is the proper response to worship. And the beautiful thing about worship is that it helps connect what we know in our heads with what we don't always feel in our hearts. That's so often why we spend time just singing and and reading God's word and praying and talking about God. We're just rehearsing truth because we know it's true up here, but in our emotions and in our affections, we, we don't always believe them. And so worship is is that mechanism, it's that discipline that allows us to align with God's truth. And so the more that we proclaim the glory of God, the more that we will result and respond in worship. And the more that we worship, the, the less that we will put God kind of in a box, the less that we'll compartmentalize God over here where he's only reserved to Sunday mornings, there's only reserve to our devotions, but, but God will, will be part of every area of our lives. So what, what a remarkable passage. That this, was, this was such a treat for me to be able to, to prep all week, to just soak in all week. We see the display of God's glory, the centrality of God's glory, the, the response to God's glory. And the last thing I want to look at is, what does this mean for us practically? What, is this, what does this mean for us as far as, as living our lives on this earth? That if heaven is like this, that if God is central in heaven and we get this picture of what it will be like, then what are the implications for how we are to live here today? 
And so let's just walk through these as we, as we look to closing our time together. Here's the first one. First one is this, just bluntly. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And here's the reality is that there are some in this room who are Christians, and then there are some who are not Christians here today. And, and just, just bluntly, if we're going to call a spade a spade today, there are some who are in this room, and you would say, I'm not a follower of Jesus I have not surrendered my life to Jesus. I have not placed my faith upon him and turned from my sins. And so my plea for you this morning, if I could just appeal to you based on this passage, is to come to Jesus today, to place your faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you see God and his glory, does that, does that scare you a little bit? That if you're not in Christ, is this Fill your heart with a little bit of terror, knowing that you have a sin issue, that you have a problem where you've offended God, and there's no remedy for that outside of the grace of Jesus. And you will have to one day approach the God in all of his glory. And if you're not in Christ, he will be your judge. So my plea for you is to come to faith in Jesus, to view God's glory as worship not as terror to place your faith upon Jesus. Number two is fill your soul with God's glory. To fill your soul with God's glory that if heaven is going to be enamored, all of us enamored with God and his glory, then we need to fill our souls with that now. As we talked about last week, if, if Jesus is somewhat boring to you now, then heaven is going to be a real drag. And so if that's true, then we need to be very, very intentional with what we are filling our souls with here as we live our lives to intentionally fill our souls with Jesus and God's glory so that in heaven we just feel right at home. Number three, persevere for God's glory persevere for God's glory. Just to remind you, again, John is writing to a group of churches who are faced with persecution. They're faced with that temptation of, of wanting to give up. And so he's writing this, and he's showing a type of God in order to help them to persevere. And so use God's glory as a means to fighting sin. Use God's glory as a means to persevere through trials and suffering. I mean, because honestly, what else is going to help you grow in your trials and not just get through them besides God's glory. So use God's glory as a way to persevere, to continue to press on. That if you wake up some mornings just as I do and you think, man, I, I don't really desire to read God's Bible. I, I don't desire to press on in obedience. That th those days happen to us. That using God's glory to align ourselves and to use that as a way to, to motivate us and persevere in the Christian life. And if you learn anything in this passage, you learn this, that the size of your God will result in the persistence of your perseverance. The size of your God will result in the persistence of your perseverance. And so how big is your God? Is he big enough to motivate you to persevere through the trial and through the temptations that you face? So persevere for God's glory. Number four, last one here. 
share the gospel. Share, be relentless in sharing the gospel that if heaven is like this, why wouldn't we want to invite as many people as possible to experience the glory of God in his presence? That if God is really like this, shouldn't we have more fervor, more dedication to sharing the gospel and to viewing every person who's not in Christ as a mission field to sharing the beauty and the wonder of King Jesus with them? So share the gospel. And I've seen this, this connection in my own life that the more that I'm centered on God's glory, the more that I find myself sharing the gospel I mean, there's this direct connection, and so share, share the gospel more and more. And this morning, as we look to, to closing our service, we have two more songs, and, and I just want to remind us that this was just a, a reminder for me that we can never exhaust the glory of God, that when we think about forever, when we think about heaven, and we think about 10,000 years from now, that we're still going to be exploring the depths of God's glory. And not only that, but 10 million years from now, we're still not going to get to the bottom of God's glory. We're still not going to enjoy the beauty of who God is and, and what he is like. And so just as a challenge for us, as we sing these last two songs, let's press into that this morning. That as we sing about God's glory, to allow our souls to be filled with that glory and to stir a longing for it. Because 10 million years from now, we're still going to be singing it. We're still going to be enjoying it. And we're going to dive deeper and deeper into the beauty of what God is like in all of his splendor. And so let's, let's praise his name with a type of fervor like we've never praised his name before. Thinking of God in these terms. So let's pray together. God, we give you praise and glory and just, we're just awestruck at who you are. And God, it is almost a fearful thing to be in your presence, and we know that's only because of the blood of Jesus that, that covers us. We know it's only because of his perfect righteousness that, that you see us through that lens, that we can actually worship you in your presence. And so, God, as we lean into a moment of worship, God, would you free us up? God, would you give us a display of your glory through the lyrics that are so God-centric? And God, give us power to be able to proclaim your beauty in a way that would honor you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.